As we've gathered here to worship in this beautiful setting, just for a moment, let your mind go to other places where you've worshiped, in other settings, with other people. Recall some of the feelings, the inspiration, the passion you experienced. Remember some of the ideas you gained and growth that was ignited. Through the years, I've been privileged to worship in great cathedrals, little chapels, rooms on ship, prisons, universities, convention halls, stadiums, just to name some of the buildings. I've joyfully worshiped at the top of mountains and on sandy beaches, on the shore of Galilee, along a small river in Philippi up in Macedonia, in the ruins of the marketplace in Corinth, beside roaring campfires, in a crowded marketplace in Ghana, West Africa. And these are just a few of the settings. I've experienced worship with very different kinds of people. I'll never forget being in a worship service in Ghana, West Africa, and in the middle of service, women in African garb, their native garb, gleefully began kind of coasting down the aisle, filled with the Spirit, dancing with great joy. I've also been with people filled with the spirits in Skid Row missions. I've been with groups who had such a painfully somber look on their faces that you would think that they belong to the fraternal order of lemon suckers. I've seen people gathered in a packed auditorium after the assassination of a young president, singing their hearts out with the tragedy and the uncertainty of the future. I've been with third through sixth graders at the end of a wonderful week at camp and experienced their exuberance. I've been with lifers in a maximum security prison in Northern Ireland. I remember worshiping with a few dozen people in an early morning service in a Catholic church in Salzburg, Germany. And not long ago, I remember worshiping with a congregation of about 50 Anglos and 300 Burmese in upstate New York, Utica, New York. Next Sunday, I'll be preaching at a service in a town outside of Bucharest, Romania, where I will need an interpreter. The Sunday after that, Alice and I will be worshiping in a yet-to-be-found church in Venice, Italy. Regardless of the buildings or lack thereof, the settings or the different people, there was one common ingredient in all of these various worship experiences. God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In some of these worship services, they seem to direct their worship more to God the Father, others more to God the Son, Jesus, still others more to God the Holy Spirit. But all were worshiping God. Today we're beginning a series of sermons on this whole subject of worship, and it's entitled, as I've already mentioned, An Audience of One. The idea comes from an analogy shared by the Danish philosopher-theologian Soren Kierkegaard, which I've shared with you in the past. He wrote about worship being like a drama. He asked the question, if there is an audience and there are actors and prompters, who plays what part in worship? When that question is asked, most people in our world might say, well, that's easy. The congregation is the audience. The actors are the pastors and the worship leaders and musicians and other support staff are the prompters. Kierkegaard would say, no, that's not correct. If we really understand worship, the worshipers are the actors. 
The worship leaders are the prompters, and God is an audience of one. As you can see, we've configured our worship like that to give us that picture that you are the actors, and we worship leaders are the prompters behind the scenes, and God is the audience of one. (laughs) No symbol could possibly represent God, but we have a candle that happens to have three wicks to give us the idea of the one whom we worship here this morning. Today we're going to begin this series with one of the great worship hymns of all times, Psalm 95. This is particularly significant to me in that my daughter Becky used it as a foundation for her marriage service back in 2010. When we look at this psalm, we're not quite sure, at least scholars are not quite certain who wrote this psalm, Psalm 95, or when it was written. It was probably for written, how, written, however, for use in temple worship, and some would say especially for the Feast of Tabernacles taking place each fall. Possibly it was done in antiphonal style, that is, going back and forth with a band of worshipers approaching the temple, singing loudly, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And then from within the temple, the the, the choir that was gathered there would say, for the Lord is a great God, and they would explain who God is and their reason for worship. Then verse 6, there would be a second call to worship followed by another statement in verse 7 about God. Today, let's read Psalm 95 responsively with the men reading the calls to worship and the women reading the statements about who God is, that audience of one. If you would, let us join together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. May God add his blessing and understanding, and today in a special way, his application as we have read his holy word. Please join me in prayer. God, in the stillness of these moments now, as we reflect on this psalm, speak to us. And, O God, as we are here to worship, may you be the singular focus of our attention. May it be all about you, God, and not about us. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. As we consider together this wonderful psalm of worship, let's look at the what, the why, and the how of worshiping this audience of one. Now, in this psalm, what are we to do as we worship? Well, we're told that we are to sing for joy to the Lord. I want to tell you, music is the language of the soul. This week, I was at a large gathering in Atlanta, and I was at the largest church in our denomination, the Peachtree Presbyterian Church. And on Thursday night, 
There was an orchestra, there was a huge choir, and people were singing at the top of their voices. And I got to tell you, I had goosebumps. I was almost moved to tears several times. The thing about music that's so special is that it keeps going through our minds even during the week. It comes back at times when God wants to speak to us in a special way. (laughs) And beloved friends, we were meant to sing with joy. Joy must be the hallmark of our worship. Joy on celebrative days, on holidays, but also joy on ordinary days. Joy on difficult and challenging days. Joy on days that are filled with pain and grief. And the reason for our joy, which is often not external or it is in our personal circumstances we may not feel joy, but the reason for our joy is our joy is directed toward the Lord. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. The psalmist goes on to say, Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. We shout aloud, don't we, when we're cheering for our favorite team. Over the last several years, when the Colts were good, I remember um, shouting aloud on several occasions uh, for the good things as well as sometimes the bad things. We happened to have a little five-and-a-half-pound Yorkie that we uh, received from my mother-in-law when she could no longer take care of her. And I tell you, every time I would shout aloud, she would go tearing for underneath a couch where she felt it would be safe. How much more should we shout aloud to the Lord, the rock of our salvation? Even more natural, Israel probably called God their rock as they thought back upon the water which came from a rock in the midst of the wilderness. There in the desert, the rock was their salvation. It's every bit as real for us today in our wilderness of instability, uncertainty, change. We have that rock on which we can stand and find stability. As verse 2 continues, what should we do? What says, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Israel had so much for which to be thankful. God had blessed them above and beyond anything they could ever deserve. Thanksgiving should be a part of the very fiber of our lives, all the time, every day. I was in a crowded airport in one of the world's busiest airports, Atlanta, on Friday evening, just about uh, uh, 6 o'clock, and and I I went to have dinner in a restaurant, and and there I had to wait for a few moments, and it was just wall-to-wall people, and I was really feeling for the servers, and my server came up, and she was very congenial. Every time she came back for one thing or another, I said, thank you very much. And pretty soon, every time she came, she stopped a little longer. And then at the very end, as she brought me my ticket, she said, where are you from anyway? And I said, well, I'm from Indianapolis. And she said, oh, how are the Colts doing? I mean, it's busy, but she wanted to talk. And uh, I told her a little bit about how I thought the Colts might do. And then I asked her about the Atlanta Falcons, Falcons, and she started talking about that. Oh, dear friends, how much more God should be the center of our thanksgiving We should be continually looking through the lens of thankfulness to God. Our worship experiences are times when we all come together with overwhelming thanksgiving. What are you most thankful for today? 
Tell God right now what you're thankful for. But it's not just a personal thing. It's a corporate thing as well. What are we most thankful for as a church today? Oh, like all churches, there are tough times. But be thankful for God's faithfulness in all times and seasons. As verse 2 continues, again, what should we do? We are told that we should extol or highly praise and laud him with music and song. Music is far from entertainment in worship. Our worship leaders are not performers. They are the prompters. The beauty of music and song is that it knits us together in our hearts and our voices. The reason we've gone to two different kinds of music styles is we want to help you to be able to join with others in extolling God. While maybe music style shouldn't, be, shouldn't matter, all of us have our preferences, and we want to help you connect with God alongside of others through the gift of music. I challenge you to sing with gusto when we sing to the Lord. My daughter Becky hasn't liked standing next to me in worship for a long time. The reason, she says, I sing with a little bit too much gusto, and often I'm not quite in tune. Oh, I often say to her, well, Becky, I'm just applying the wisdom of another psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. So verses 1 and 2 give us the what of worship. Why are we to worship this audience of one? And we find that answer in verses 3 through 5. The answer is loud and clear. The Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. God is a supreme authority above all others. I read a lot of novels and listen to a lot of novels as I drive back and forth. Many of them are of national and international intrigue. Often the question is, under whose jurisdiction or authority should we carry on this investigation and then bring about justice? Should it be the local police, the FBI, the CIA, the Homeland Security, the NSA? Internationally, sometimes uh, the question is, which government has the authority to bring justice to bear? No matter where we are, God is the supreme authority for all the situations of our lives. He is the one true God above every other authority. Oh, certainly we're called to pray for our leaders, those who have authority over us. But to whom are we praying? Why, those who are over them. And we're called to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but who gave them the power and the authority? Well, it was that ultimate authority, God. Why is God the supreme authority above all others? Well, the psalmist goes on to say, well, because he's the creator. He's the maker of all. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountaintops belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Go to the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the thesis statement not only for the whole Bible, but for all of life. John 1.3 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Every Wednesday morning I gather early in the morning with a, a group of men downtown. And we're just beginning to read together Francis Chan's award-winning book, Crazy Love. In the first chapter... Chan speaks about the wonder of God's creation around us. He talks about 
350 galaxies, which we can now see with the Hubble telescope, but certainly many more which we probably can't see. He talks about a caterpillar having 228 distinct and separate muscles in his head alone. He talks about there being 3,000 species of trees within one square mile in the Amazon jungle. After talking about the marvel and great wonder of God's workmanship as creator, Chan writes these words. This is why we are called to worship him, his art, his handiwork, and his creation all echo the truth that he is glorious. There is no other like him. He is the king of kings, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. I know that you've heard this before, but I don't want you to miss it. As we look at verse 7, it helps us to go even further. This powerful, majestic God has chosen to be close to us. Think of it. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care, the beautiful pastoral picture of a shepherd who tenderly cares for his flock. He knows each of them by name. There's a relationship. He is our God. He cares for them. The flock is under his care. As Christians, we can go even a couple of steps further than the psalmist. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it when it says, He moved into our neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This awesome, amazing Creator God chose to broke through human history and come to our world in Jesus. And step number two, the same God indwells all who believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit empowers us. He reveals truth. He guides us. He directs us. He comforts us. He encourages us. He convicts us among just some of the works that He does within us. Oh, dear friends, do you get a glimpse of why we worship God, our audience of one? Next, how do we worship God, our audience of one? Where well, verse 6 tells us, he gives us what should be the natural response as to how we worship this God. Come, let us bow down and worship and the idea of bowing down here in the Hebrew has the idea of falling flat on one's face in reverential awe and fear. It's like anyone in the Bible, when he or she is encountered by God or an angel or a messenger of God, falls on their face. Bowing down means realizing how puny and small we are before a great God. Bowing down means realizing how weak and utterly helpless we are before such a mighty, all-powerful God. Falling prostrate means realizing how wayward and sinful we are before such a righteous, holy God. Bowing down or prostrating ourselves before the Lord also has the idea of completely surrendering our lives to this awesome, inspiring God. Bowing down means as much as we know how 
submitting ourselves to God. We could go on and on for the reasons of falling down prostrate on our faces before God, but the psalmist goes on to say, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Once we get up off of our faces, then we are in a kneeling position. Kneeling has the idea of expressing our humility before the God who created us and loves us with a love that will never let us go. Kneeling is a way of expressing honor, homage to the one who is our Lord, our great God, our King. Let me share a quote that I came across as I worked on this message this week from Donald Williams, who was at the time a pastor, seminary professor, and writer from Southern California. It seems that he brings into focus not only the psalm, but also worshiping our audience of one. I quote, Here then, a crucial point is made. Our worship is not centered in what we get out of church, that is, edification or inspiration. There could be several other things. Our worship is centered in what we give to God. Worship is the turning of our lives over to Him, nothing less. A service of worship, therefore, is a service of surrender. This reality, if expressed, will deliver us from much of the self-centered, so-called worship of the modern church. Wow, what a statement. What a psalm. What a God. Does this all make sense to you as you consider the what, the why, and the how of worship as found in Psalm 95? If it makes sense, then let's together ask God to help us be intentional about worshiping our audience of one with passion and integrity every time we gather together. Let's bow down or surrender to the Lord, the rock of our salvation, our maker, our shepherd. Let us kneel before him, paying him the homage he so richly deserves. When we look at it this way, the format of the worship service and the music really doesn't matter. Oh, certainly we have our preferences. Some kinds of music resonate with and move us more than others. The setting doesn't matter. The buildings don't matter. Even the people with whom we worship don't really matter in the sense that uh, we have to be with special people if we're going to worship completely. Certainly the prompters don't matter. What matters most is our surrender, our submission, our homage to our audience of one. In these final moments of this worship service to God, are there changes that God is calling you to make in your worship? Are there confessions that you need to make to God today? Are there new commitments that you feel like he's inspiring you to make? As you think about that, dear friends, be assured of this. This God, our audience of one, this awesome king above all others, this great authority, loves you. You matter to God. And he has proven that he loves you, that you matter to him in Jesus, who came to our earth, died on a cross for our sins, rose triumphantly from death to everlasting life. I mean, how could he have done any more than that to prove that you matter to him? If you've never begun a personal relationship with him, that journey could start today. 
by accepting the gift of forgiveness and beginning a new walk of faith. If you've wandered far away from this awesome God, oh, dear friend, you can come home today, here, this morning. There will be people in the alcove by the cross afterwards who would consider it a privilege to listen to and pray with you this morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we fall down before you and say you are an awesome God. You are the maker of all. You are the creator. You are the one who loves us with a love that will never let us go. And we're grateful that we matter to you, even though sometimes we wonder how that could ever be. I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to each one of us and you would help us as we worship you this week and as we worship you in the Sundays to come, that we might worship you with a sense of spirit and truth, that we might worship you in new and fresh ways. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love for us and allowing us to be the sheep of your pasture. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.